You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. As the pool of candidates for the 2024 election continues to grow, so does the middle class here in the United States. For President Biden, this group is at the center of his core economic policy. I'm here in Chicago today for the first quarter of the 21st century to talk about the economic vision for this country. The economy that grows the economy from the middle out, the bottom up, instead of just the top down. When that happens, everybody does well. And 16 months out from Election Day, Biden has a middle class problem. The economic anxiety of America's middle class could make or break his chances of re-election. And that is the key topic of today's Big Take. So joining us to discuss is Sean Donnan, one of the authors of the story, Bloomberg News, senior writer for economics. And we've got Nancy Cook, Bloomberg's senior national political correspondent. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Nancy, I'm going to start it off with you because the president has a pretty strong argument to make on the economy, at least right now. You could say we've got some strong jobs data. The Fed is likely to start cutting rates by the time the election rolls around. Inflation expectations are starting to cool off. Does all of that work as his core messaging heading into the election uh, if Americans are still struggling financially at home? Well, that is really the great challenge um, for the 2024 election and for Democrats. There is a real disconnect between a lot of positive economic data, like the very low unemployment rate, um, or the fact that inflation is starting to come down, um, or the fact that wages have been rising, and how people in the middle class actually feel. People in the middle class, as Sean's great piece pointed out, really feel uh, uncertain. You know, there has been this threat of a recession for the past year. People have been talking about, they're nervous about that. Groceries have really been high. Gas prices have fluctuated. Uh, You know, people are really feeling, uh, you know, a little bit financial uncertainty, particularly as a lot of that stimulus money that we saw the government pump into the economy from COVID has started to leave the economy and is no longer in people's uh, bank accounts. And so I I just think people are feeling a certain amount of angst. And so the trick for the Biden White House is to actually sell their economic agenda and to make people feel like their economic prospects are good. And that's something that they haven't been able to do so far. And Sean, uh, thanks for joining us. Great to speak with you here because you're one of the three writers on this piece. Talk me through some of the data that you found in your reporting about kind of the angst of the American middle class. Nancy hit it on 
ahead there where she talks about the, the White House struggling to get its message across to, to, to the middle class. But what we found is that when you, you drill down, it's not just that they're not listening, it's that they're also looking at what is happening to their household budgets, they're looking at what is happening to interest rates, and uh, they're worried about what lies ahead. If the Fed starts cutting rates uh, between now and the election, there's probably where it may well be because the U.S. is slipping into a recession and they're conscious of, of that. So we looked at household uh, expenditure data and what we found is that the average middle class household spent $8,000 more annually on household expenses than it did before the pandemic in 2022. And since then, we know that prices have, have risen further. We also looked at wealth data and what the wealth data shows us is that since the Fed started raising interest rates in March of 2022, the U.S. middle class has lost somewhere around two, two and a half trillion dollars in wealth that's associated with with housing prices. It's associated with what we've seen uh, swing in the markets, retirement savings and so on. We also ran a poll uh working with the folks at, at the Harris Poll. Uh, we've been running a quarterly poll looking at how uh, middle-class Americans feel about their personal economic situation and the economy more, more broadly. The emotions that come up when they're asked about the economy more broadly, the top emotions that they list are anxiety and stress. When they think, think about their personal situation and they're asked, do you expect things to get better in the next year? Only 39% of uh, middle-class Americans said they expected things to improve from now. So they're not mm -hmm. feeling very optimistic. They're feeling anxious, they're stressed, and they're looking at some very real impact uh, on their household balance sheet. Yeah, and that real impact came up during a lot of your conversations. Again, you and your colleagues interviewing two dozen members of the middle class. Let's listen in to some of what they had to say. The middle class is getting squeezed. There's programs for people with less means. There's a lot of tax cuts for high earners. I was uh, caught in the layoff back in February. There hasn't been the opportunities out there that there were the first time I went through this. Most people don't fall into middle class anymore. They fall more into lower middle class or upper lower class. All right. So, Sean, when you're listening in to uh, some of those uh, statements from the folks that you interviewed, I'm curious if there's anything that we missed from that sound that you could tell our listeners about. Are there any personal stories that have really stuck with you, stood out to you? Yeah, look, I, I think what you you heard there from Tammy Pearson, Ron Davis and Laurie Blumstein. And those are three people who are in, in their 50s and 60s right now. Uh, Tammy and Lori are, are both retired. Uh, and Ron, who's the, the gentleman in the middle there who, who was laid off as a business executive in, in, in Minnesota. Um, all three of them will tell you that they have a relative level of economic security uh, right now. That is what it means to be middle class in America. It means you can write out a, a certain amount of, 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 of stress, of financial stress, but they're all anxious and they're also all confronting things that uh, are kind of beyond their power. Tammy will tell you that her retirement portfolio is down 20%. Ron will has been laid off twice, actually, in the last two years. Uh, and Lori is used to work in the mortgage industry and she wishes she was still working in the mortgage industry, but she was laid off last August and that kind of 
forced her in, into retirement. And it's that vulnerability to what's the broader things that are happening in the economy that kind of creates that anxiety that we see show up in the broader polls. Yeah. And this stat from your story really stuck with me. Uh, You write that by the middle of 2022, middle class households were spending $8,000 more each year than in 2019 before the pandemic. A lot of it on essentials like housing, transportation and food. And I know you talked about that a little bit earlier, too, Sean. Uh, But Nancy, I'm curious, as we talked about, Biden's doing all of this work on the economy, but is any of that work going to have a tangible impact on consumers at home who are having to spend on these essentials by November 5th of 2024? Well, I think the Biden team would argue that they are doing the best that they can. You know, they're trying to tackle everything from inflation. They argue that the unemployment rate is low. They're also trying to tackle a bunch of like hidden fees through regulations that Uh, consumers face like airline fees or sort of overdraft fees from banks. And they they argue that those things really add up. I would say that until inflation really gets under control and people are go to the grocery store and don't see the price of eggs as high or meat as high or, you know, travel isn't as high like airline tickets, I think Americans are still going to feel like this little bit of uncertainty about the economy and, and concern that so much of their dollars are just going to like these basic things like groceries, gas, um, you know, their their housing, rents have gone up. And I think until the Biden team really gets those things under control and makes Americans feel better about them and better mm-hmm. about their economic prospects, I think that this will continue to be a theme for them in 2024. And it's certainly something that we will expect the Republicans to hit Biden on in the next 17 months before the 2024 election. Yeah, and we're already hearing Republicans do that on the campaign trail. Here's what former President Trump had to say at a rally in South Carolina about Biden and inflation. We will stop Biden's inflation nightmare, and I will reverse every one of Biden's globalist economic betrayals. And once again, we will put America first, and we'll put it first like never before. So, Nancy, in in hearing that sound, I'm curious if you can talk to me about whether part of this is that uh, Republican candidates and former President Trump in particular are going to be able to go out on the campaign trail and talk to voters and, and kind of recognize and validate their economic concerns versus what we're hearing from the White House, which is, hey, we're doing a lot for you guys. Th- things are, are tough, but we're, we're really trying for you. Um, can you talk me through which of those two kind of strategies might be more effective on the campaign trail? Well, what we have is we have going back to the midterms in 2022, and the economy was in a rougher spot then than it is now, arguably. And the Democrats uh, still suffered losses, but definitely not as as great a loss as um, many people anticipated, including people in the White House. And so I think the Democrats would say, you know, look, the economy, you know, inflation was a bad then. And we still, you know, people still weren't totally buying the Republicans' message. And there were a lot of reasons for that. A lot of voters are mad about abortion policies from the Supreme Court. They feel like the Republican Party poses a threat to democracy. So people we saw in the midterms were were voting on a much wider spectrum of issues than just the economy. I think the question for 2024 is can Democrats sort of continue to focus on these other issues like abortion or, um, you know, Social Security and Medicare and their efforts to protect that 
um, or does it become an election mostly about the economy? And I will say that I've spent a lot of time on the road the last six months and I've seen a lot of the Republican candidates in person. And while they do really knock Biden for inflation and his economic record, I would say that most of the um, or all of the Republican candidates so far are not putting forward their own economic proposals of what they would actually do to tame inflation or what they would do in terms of fiscal policy. And so while it's like an easy line for them to criticize Biden, we haven't heard a lot of forward looking discussion from them on how they would actually handle the economy to make it work for the middle class. Right, which is something that is going to be important for voters to hear uh, as the campaign goes on. Sean, I know that you spoke with folks about uh, their varied views on Republicans versus Democrats and specifically where they lie across those party lines. Uh, And it, it looks to me like you're seeing even more of that bifurcation. Can you talk to me about what the data told you about sort of how the economic struggles that folks are experiencing right now are, are kind of leading to even more partisanship. Sure. I mean, there, there are definitely, there is a partisanship in America, and that applies to how you, uh, you view the economy. Uh, Republicans are much more sour on the state of the economy than Democrats right now. But look, one of the things that we're, I think we need to track uh, over the next 16 months is independence. Uh, you know, Gallup has this tracking poll of, of self-identification or party identification. And for the first time ever, almost half of Americans classify themselves as independents in America. And that's something we really ran into when we were out there talking to folks. There are a lot of middle class independents who are kind of reserving judgment right now. And a lot of uh, what they're telling us or what they were telling us in, in recent weeks was that's going to depend on who the Republican candidate is or what third party candidates uh, pop up in, in, in the mix as well. So I think that's something to watch politically as well. And then, of course, all of this is going to be affected by where the economy goes between now and November 2024 and this recession that economists, uh, many economists still think is uh, lying on the horizon uh, between mm-hmm. or between now and then, right? Right. I mean, our own Bloomberg economics team puts chances of a recession at 80 percent. That's better news than the 100 percent prediction that we previously had, but still still not great odds if you're running for president. Uh, Nancy, talk to me about what President Biden has said recently about the potential of the U.S. avoiding that recession. So Biden has a very sunny uh, take on the fact that there will not be a recession. I traveled with him to Maryland to two fundraisers um, last week, and he told donors at one of the fundraisers that, you know, economists have been saying for the past 11 months that there's going to be a recession right around the corner. Uh, His argument to the donors was that it hasn't happened yet and that he and his White House do not think it's going to happen. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of economists I talk to seem to think that there is still the possibility of a recession. It may not be a very deep one. It might be a more mild one. I think politically, the question is, if there is a recession in 2024, in which quarter does that come? If it comes earlier in the year and there's a quick recovery, that could be potentially politically much better for Democrats than having a recession hit next summer or early next fall right when voters are really starting to clue into the election and and making decisions about who they're going to vote for. All right, Nancy, thank you so much. That was Nancy Cook and Sean Donnan with Bloomberg News. Stick around for more. This is Sound On and this is Bloomberg. 
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Hi, Madison Mills in for Joe Matthew here in D.C. with Kaylee Lyons. A very, very special occasion, both of us being here in D.C. Also, lots of travel news heading out of the weekend, including for Secretary of State Janet Yellen leaving for China today. The hope here is that she's able to find some common ground when it comes to opening up communication between the two uh, and Kaylee, of course, figuring out hopefully some mutually beneficial economic policy positions as well. Yeah, we'll see if they really figure out anything (laughs) tangible, though, because it seems like they've intentionally tried to set the bar pretty low here. Just like when we saw last month when Secretary of State Antony Blinken made his own trip to Beijing, just the fact that they are talking, they are trying to chalk up as a win here. Just the idea that these meetings are happening in person, that people are meeting face-to-face, that seems like really all the administration is trying to accomplish. And yes, issues will be raised. Yeah, Issues like trade or like debt forgiveness on the part uh, of China being a large creditor to some struggling uh, countries that are in distress. I'm sure the Treasury Secretary will raise those. Does that mean that we're going to get any real news? Right. I don't know. Right. I mean, that's that's the question. It feels like they're they're setting the expectations low in hopes of coming in a little bit higher. So we're going to discuss some of the news we might be getting out of this trip with our next guest. We've got Hans Dow here. He's CEO of the Mitchell Madison Group. Great to speak with you, Hans. And thanks for coming on to talk about this trip. Previously, as as Kaylee was saying, Yellen has kind of kept the bar really low for this trip. It's saying it's, you know, just a meeting, opening communication. Can we expect any bigger news to come out of this? Well, thank you for having me. I I don't think so. I I would be quite pessimistic around that meeting. It's obviously a good thing that politicians are meeting and that's good to keep lines of communication open. But I think the underlying background with China is that China has a massive PR problem in the U.S. You have everything from, you know, Taiwan tensions, AI chip sanctions, balloons, spy stations, scandals. You're now in a situation where um, if you look at the Pew Research that 82% of the U.S. population has a negative view of China. That's actually 10 points worse than the depth of COVID and versus, you know, neutral before COVID. I think it's a very, very difficult situation. And policymakers mm-hmm. uh, listen to voters and voters view China as very negative. Well, as we talk about the policy, we, of course, had Treasury Secretary Yellen earlier this spring outlining you know, kind of her broad overview of what her her policy or thinking is when it comes to the relationship with China. Back in April, she was speaking uh, at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies here in Washington, D.C., saying she's seeking a constructive relationship. Just take a listen to the secretary. We seek a constructive and fair economic relationship with China. 
both countries need to be able to frankly discuss difficult issues, and we should work together when possible for the benefit of our countries and the world. So she wants it to be constructive and fair. She also has pushed back on the idea of a decoupling between the U.S. and China, basically saying that she wants to protect U.S. national security and economic interests while not necessarily putting China back uh, economically either. Is there de-risking when it comes to China without decoupling? Well, I think from a policy perspective, they're certainly trying that, right? I mean, China today just hit back in, in terms of sanctions with um, um, some rare earth minerals, right? You probably saw that for chip manufacturing, gallium, germanium trade restrictions. Mm-hmm. And I did mention uh, decoupling in, uh, specifically. I think a lot of this stuff, you have to look at the private sector maybe uh, more carefully than what's going on with the big headlines, right? So on the private sector side, which is you know what my business is to advise people on supply chain issues, uh, private sector companies, what's been happening is that um, people are decoupling, right? They're diversifying. So a couple of interesting statistics. Mexican imports to the U.S. set a record in the last reporting period. At the same time, non-China, low-cost Asian countries are projected to be more than 50% of U.S. imports very soon, right? You had Modi visiting in D.C. So there's a lot of things going on that have to do with, you know, planning for a de-, de facto decoupling. There's talk at the at the top level, of course, but I think the private sector is already acting. I want to stick with you on this because we've, we've had guests before that have described it as, you know, the U.S. gives you a slap on the wrist when you go to them, whereas if you go to China, you get the red carpet rolled out for you. To what extent are you thinking that countries, some of those emerging markets that you mentioned, like in India, are, are still sort of swayed by China trying to make themselves more accessible, paint themselves as a more accessible alternative to the U.S.? I think I think that is look China will be competitive it's an it's obviously a very large country emerging power they want to be you know what we are currently and um that that could all happen right that's certainly going to make progress I think the the other I'm a little bit skeptical just because the demographics of China are also going the wrong direction you look at China uh in terms of the economic economy it's quite weak now we're talking about you know COVID baseline adjusted three uh, percent growth which is a much more normal country that's not China right they're going to get hit with weakening industrial output due to Western recessionary demand slowdown. Um, There's a bunch of issues around youth unemployment, their property are down, it's not looking good for them. And at the same time, the big underlying trend is collapsing demographics, right? China is um, 23% of the global workforce today, but they're projected to be only 18% by 2050. That is an enormous change. So I think it's, the, 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 the more I think about this, it sort of rings a little bit, it reminds you of Japan, you know, in the 90s. I mean, maybe it won't be as bad, but there's a lot of similarities. So I'm, I'm not particularly bullish on China. And I would, you know, I would, if I was a developing nation, I would not necessarily align with China over the West. So as you're talking about how the economy is a little bit softer than anticipated, they're dealing with some demographic headwinds as well. Is this another way of saying that when it comes to not just the talks with Janet Yellen, but frankly, just any dialogue between the U.S. and China in terms of positioning, that China is coming to it more from a position of weakness than of strength? 
I think increasingly so. I, I would think that they also have, you know, many more domestic problems. Um, you know, if, if they don't deliver on the growth targets, their population is going to be very unhappy with very, you know, potentially very bad outcomes for leadership. So I think that's that's what I mean. I, I really feel that that China has um, is overplaying their cards a little bit right now. They're they're hitting back on those sanctions. And um, there's just a lot of things that the US and the West has in terms of intellectual property, especially on the AI side, uh, you know, the, the chips yeah. you saw today, the administration hit back on restricting access to uh, cloud services that use these NVIDIA right. chips. So I think they're quite vulnerable on some of these high end technologies. So could the US be capitalizing more on that than it is, Hans? I mean, they could. The question is, should you, right? I mean, you always have to take into account that it's a tremendous military power. So that, that those yeah. those types of things have to, you know, play into 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 the equation. And I think the administration is playing it right that they have to they have to be cautious. They have to keep the lines of communications open, uh, and and but at the same time protect uh, American and Western interests. So in our final minute with you, Hans, what is one thing that you think is reasonable for us to anticipate coming out of this trip? Uh, I, I think uh, what you said before is probably true. Expectations will be low. I think there will be not a whole lot of concrete stuff. Uh, Yellen has also on, on, on record for saying that she um, that the administration is ready to accept economic costs in exchange for national security, right? She said that too. So I think there's a lot of, um, I would have low expectations. They will keep talking. I think some of these, um, you know, trade uh, spats right now could be eased. There might be some agreement around, you know, easing some restrictions. But I think the long-term trend is really towards a private sector driven de-risking, not total decoupling, but de-risking of China and isolating them and limiting the ability to access uh, Western technology at the very high end. Yeah. All right, Hans, thank you so much for joining us. That was Hans Dow, CEO of the Mitchell Madison Group. Really appreciate you joining us here on Sound On. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Madison Mills, in for Joe Matthew today here with Kaylee Lyons. The Biden administration has to limit contact with social media companies. That is an order from a federal judge in Louisiana. And Kaylee, the focus here is on officials not reaching out to platforms specifically with the goal of, you know, suppressing speakers and viewpoints uh, that they disagree with here. Yeah, of course, this is something that you often hear on a certain side of American politics, that conservative voices are silenced on on social media. So essentially what this this judge, who is a Trump appointee, mm -hmm. uh, we should point out, ruled is that certain parts of the government, so think the Department of Health and Human Services, the FBI, cannot be in communication with these social media companies for the purpose of urging or encouraging them uh, to contain protected free speech. So ultimately, this kind of comes down to a First Amendment issue. It, it absolutely does. It's one of those stories that has it all, right? Free speech, hmm. First Amendment, misinformation, so much of it that's become so important in our uh, social media uh, world that we're all living in here. So let's get right to it. We've got Sarah Fordern on the line, Bloomberg News team leader. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for hopping on here with us. Talk to me about the legalities of this case, because you're, you're leading our legal team here at Bloomberg. Uh, where does the case stand right now, and what are the next steps? 
Yes, hi, thanks for having me. You absolutely uh, summed it up perfectly. Um, this is a case which is uh, remarkable in the sense that it is the first time we've seen a, a judge actually order the government not to uh, speak to social media companies about certain kinds of content um, or have meetings with them. Um, at the same time, it's bringing the whole debate, which has been building for several years now over how to moderate social media content, it's bringing it right to the First Amendment issue. So you're adding a whole sort of stream of, of, of issues around, you know, what is free speech? And, and of course, you know, the law of our land is that the government cannot impinge in any way on free speech. Um, so we have the ruling from um, Judge Doty in Louisiana um, that is standing in effect. There was no delay in it going into effect. And it would prevent the Biden administration from contacting social media companies uh, about uh, issues uh, which they perceive as you know, First Amendment issues. At the same time, it doesn't prevent them from talking to companies about any content that has to do with criminality, with national security issues, um, or public um, safety issues. So, so there is there are a few exceptions to this ruling. We are expecting the Justice Department to appeal this ruling. Um, so far, they have just told us they're parsing the decision and, and evaluating their options. So uh, we think that could come in the coming days. Um, and we're also watching, this could actually put the case on a very fast track right back to the Supreme Court, mm. um, which earlier this year punted on two social media cases and kind of kicked the can down the road and, and really kind of um, declined to weigh in um, in a major way on these issues of, of free speech and content moderation. So if it could, Sarah, ultimately make its way all the way up to the highest court in the United States. What about that timeline? Because when we're having these conversations around misinformation and the ability of the U.S. government to have a hand in, in, in controlling or containing it, I mean, we're heading into an election year. Is this something we're likely to see resolved uh, before we actually have people heading into voting booths? Well, there's several tracks here, and the Supreme Court has already said it will take up a different um, social media case in the fall term, which starts in October. Um, but there's something that's known as the shadow docket. So uh, let me play, spell it out for you. If the Biden administration asks for an appeal and then asks for a court to stay this uh, ruling, which would prevent them from talking to social media companies, that could quickly um, shoot onto the Supreme Court shadow docket, where they would be called in to, to argue, you know, weigh in immediately on, on this, uh, well before the October term starts. Mm. So I'm curious when it comes to the SCOTUS decision uh, and implications here, what the definition of free speech might start to look like, particularly co coming off of the Supreme Court decision on that Christian uh, graphic artist, the Supreme Court saying that artists can refuse to make wedding websites for gay couples, uh, pointing to free speech came up a lot, of course, during that. Can you talk to me about the similarities or, or more likely the differences between a case like that and this one? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, you know, the law of the land has really stood for being uh, allowing free speech, even when it's divisive or uh, you know, potentially problematic. Of course, that runs right into the issue of, you know, what is what do you consider a public forum? Are these uh, platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Google considered public forums? And where does the whole sort of public safety issue come in where, you know, it's not uh, legal to yell fire in a crowded movie theater. Um, so these are the kinds of issues that, that you know, 
our court system is, is being called on to parse and where do the lines fall there. Yeah, well, and the safety issue you bring up is something that President Biden talked about recently when it comes to this. Take a listen to what he had to say. They're killing people. I mean, it really, look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated. And, that, and, they're, and they're killing people. Okay, so to give some context on that, that's President Biden talking specifically about the impact that social media platforms have when it comes to misinformation impacting vaccine uptake. Uh, In our final minute here with you, Sarah, does that argument stand when it comes to safety and and free speech uh, and White House officials reaching out to social platforms to suppress speech in an effort of that safety? Well, again, this is exactly where the lines are being drawn. And you know, the Biden administration has said it was doing nothing more than trying to protect people, uh, take, you know, ask the social media companies to take down information that was hurting people. Uh, on the other side, um, the conservative viewpoints feel this is the kind of information that is, you know, if this kind of information is being taken down, then that, that censors effectively conservative views. Um, so it's, there's a real standoff over this issue in this country right now. And Sarah, finally, just as we talk about the standoff over this issue, it seems like it's ultimately social media moderation is going to come down to the courts, to the justice system, that that's how all of this is going to be decided. Or judicial yeah, system mean, is perhaps a better, better up, phrase. Up until now, we've been looking at a measure called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which protects social media companies for both content that they leave up and content that they take down. Right. And the debate up until now has been, do we reform Section 230? In the absence of any congressional action or momentum on these questions, uh, the, the, the issues are spilling right into our court system. All right, Sarah. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for making time with us. That was Sarah Forden, Bloomberg News legal team leader, talking with us about this news. The Biden administration ordered to limit contact with social media platforms, specifically in an effort to suppress the content that comes up on those platforms. This is going to be a really important issue, Kaylee, for us to cover as we are officially 16 months out from Election Day. (laughs) Who's counting, though? I feel like you're counting because oh, I'm definitely you, counting. your life gets to start again. Getting a little sweaty thinking about 16 it. 16 months from now. This is Sound On and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.